Father, we thank you, Lord, for just being in the presence of these people right now. Lord, we know that uh, sometimes we fall short. Sometimes we don't do things the way that we ought to. God, but because of your amazing grace and your amazing love that you ravished out on us, Lord, we can stand here in your presence and just bask in your glory. God, what a great privilege it is to be in the presence of God. May we never take that for granted. May we never become complacent when we're in a place, Lord, where your Holy Spirit is moving in our lives. I pray, God, that we would just be attentive to what you have to say to us. God, so many times we tend to, to listen to everything else in the world, but we don't listen to you. And today I pray with all that I am, Lord, I pray that we be people that just simply listen to you and listen to what you have to say to us. God, I praise your name for, for being a God who is so intimately knowledge, knowledgeable of us and, and who we are and what we're about. God, that you know exactly what we need to hear at exactly the right time. So, Lord, speak to us now. God, God tell us what we need to hear. Help us to tune in and listen to your small, still voice, God, as you speak to us. Lord, and for those that are dealing, Lord, I know that there are people here. Uh, maybe it's students, maybe it's adults. They're, they're dealing with their relationship with you. And maybe they realize that they don't have one. Maybe they realize that they're in need of one. God, I pray you do a great work in their life, God, through this word. I know that your word has a power to change lives. So, Lord, you do that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, we are continuing in our study of uh, Moses. We've entitled the series, I Am. And uh, it's so funny that the guy that, that spoke at, um, at the D-Now this weekend, I, I think that he's like looking at my notes or something like that because he, he even was talking about how his daughter had like written on her mirror, I am, I am's. And what she was saying is, is she belongs to the I am, that the I am who is the one true God that she belongs to him. And uh, I think that is an amazing picture of what we need to be as followers of Christ. We need to recognize that I am, I am's. Uh, he talks about himself when, when Moses, we, we've been talking about Moses the past few weeks, and when God reveals himself to Moses, and we talk about the burning bush, and we talked about that a little bit last week. When God revealed himself to Moses, Moses, he starts like, his, he's freaking out a little bit. He doesn't know what's going on because uh, he understands something. That where Moses was at this point in time when God revealed himself to Moses and said, you're going to lead my people out of Egypt. And Moses was like, do what? Uh, Moses had killed an Egyptian because he saw this Egyptian that was beaten up on one of his Hebrew brothers. And he was like, he was mad about it. He was infuriated. Uh, it is not okay to kill anybody. It was not okay for Moses to kill the Egyptian. But he did that out of kind of like this anger that he had because he was so passionate about his people. And he killed the Egyptian, tried to bury him in the sand and hide him. And then somebody called him out on it. And Moses is like, I got to get out of here. I got to run away. And he goes and stays with the Midian. And he's like hanging out there. And he marries a lady. And all this kind of stuff is going on. And then one day, God just interrupts his life. And he has this like... I cannot imagine what must have been going on through, through Moses' mind at this point in time. Because here's the situation. Moses was raised as an Egyptian. He was an Egyptian prince. And he was raised that way. One day he starts dealing with the fact that this Egyptian is beating up on one of his people. He gets mad. He kills an Egyptian. And then he runs and hides. And we talked about how Moses was probably going through a little bit of an identity crisis at that point in time. Right? So... Here he is, he's an Egyptian, so he, or he was raised as an Egyptian, so he doesn't really fit in with his Hebrew brothers. 
Then he kills an Egyptian, so he didn't really fit in with the Egyptians anymore. So he's like, what do I do? And then all of a sudden, God just, boom, interrupts his life with this whole burning bush scenario that we all know so well. We've heard it a million times. And he says, all right, here, Moses, here's your task. You go and you lead my children, the children of Israel out of Egypt. You lead my people out of, out of Egypt. We're going to set them free. I've heard their groanings. I've heard their cries. And now they're coming out. And I imagine Moses is like, um, God, I don't, I don't know how that's going to work, man. I don't really fit in with the Egyptians anymore because I killed one of them. I don't really fit in with the Israelites because they still see me as an Egyptian. You know, I was raised that way. I was raised as an Egyptian prince. And here I am. Now you want me to go and tell these Israelites that I'm the one that's supposed to lead them out of there? Are you kidding me? And I think a lot of us have found ourselves in that situation before. We're like, man, God's calling me to do something that make a whole lot of sense. And you're like, this doesn't even like register in my brain that you could possibly be calling me to do this because I don't really fit in in this group or that group. And how in the world am I going to connect with this group in such a way that I'm supposed to lead them? Well, God said, well, it's simple. You just go and you tell them that the I am sent you. You go and you tell the Israelite leaders that the I am sent you, and he is the one that has called you to do this thing. Now, in our lives, what does that mean for us? It means that, you know what we need to be focused on? Yeah, we talked about lots of stuff last week about how, you know, we get focused on, on the wrong things, and we get worried about what we're supposed to do with our lives and what kind of college degree we're supposed to have and all this kind of stuff. And I tweeted this this week because I got burdened about the fact that I didn't say it out loud, so I should have. So now I get to go back and regurgitate a little bit of what I was supposed to say last week. And that is that you are not so supposed to be concerned so much with what you are to do with your life. You're supposed to be concerned with who are you going to follow. And that is what you need to focus on. You're looking for something to focus on. What's so funny, I see kids in college all the time, right? I used to be a college pastor, and I know what this is like. So they're go, you know what they focus on? Like, like, what degree am I supposed to have? I need to focus on, you know, I need to, maybe I try a few classes, then I switch my major, and then I switch it again, and I switch it again. And parents are going like, would you choose something already? Please, for the love, will you please just choose what you're going to do? I don't care if you're going to be a fry cook on Venus. It doesn't matter. I just want you to pick something, basket, underwater basket weaving, whatever it may be. Just pick something, get a major, let's do this thing. Because you don't really care what they get a degree in. You just want that little piece of paper. You want to say, my money paid for this little piece of paper and you got it. Good. Check. Good job. And I see lots of college students and high school seniors in particular, they, they start freaking out a little bit too when they get to the last you know, few months of high school and they start like, oh no, what am I going to do with my life? Um, I, I see them you know, struggling with this. I'm like, why are you not more concerned about who to follow? Instead of what you're going to do with your life, why don't you focus on Jesus and you follow him? And can you imagine your college student going, Mom, Dad, uh, you know, I'm really struggling with what degree to get. But uh, let me tell you this. One thing I know that I'm doing right now is I'm following Jesus. And Jesus is working in my life. And he's, he's put something on my heart. And I'm, I'm trying to seek that out. And I'm trying to follow this vision that God has for my life. It'd be kind of hard to chew him out for not having a major picked yet, wouldn't it? It'd be really hard for me to go, what is wrong with you? You must be doing the wrong thing. Are you kidding, man? You want to shut your parents up, college kids? Try that, man. I'm following Jesus. I've been studying the Bible for an hour each morning, and, and, and I'm going to Sundays and Wednesdays, and I'm in small groups, and I'm doing all these things trying to follow Jesus. And I'm going I'm to let that major thing work, its out late, work itself out later, but right now I'm following Jesus. Man, that'd be like, that'd be a big cup of shut-up juice for your parents, wouldn't it? 
you start saying that kind of thing, you can use that. Feel free to. It's okay. Um, so here we, we see Moses. God's called him to lead uh, the children of Israel out of Egypt. Moses is freaking out because, you know, God says, well, you got to go to Pharaoh now. That's the only way you're going to be able to do it um, is if you go to Pharaoh and you got to tell him. And they're like, he's like, man. All right, Aaron, me and you, it's me and you, buddy. We got to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let our people go. Can you imagine the amount of tension that must have been in that conversation when him and Aaron's working this out and they're like talking to God and they're like, okay, God says we got to go and we got to take the stick and we got to throw it down on the ground and it's going to turn into a serpent. I would have been like, man, are you sure? Hey, Aaron, <laughs> I don't know where you're getting your sticks these days, but you better go and find a good one because we're going to need a good one today. Today will be the day for a good stick. If you're going to find a good staff for us to carry around, you better find a good one today because it's got to turn into a serpent. I hope you're ready. And here they go. So here's where we find ourselves. We find Moses going into uh, to talk to Pharaoh and uh, they're ready to do this thing. When It says in Exodus chapter 7, if you want to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7, we find ourselves right in the, uh, in the middle of this whole thing where uh, uh, Moses and Aaron are in the face of Pharaoh and they're talking to him. It says, in verse 8 of Exodus chapter 7, it says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh demands, show me a miracle. When he does this, say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down in front of Pharaoh and it will become a serpent. And you're like, oh, great, man. Yeah, okay, all right. This is going to be tough, God. I hope you can pull this off. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did what the Lord had commanded them. And Aaron threw down his staff before the Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a serpent. That's a good trick, all right? That's a really good trick. I like that. And it is, it is the work of God. It is not some kind of sleight of hand, as we know magic to be. You know, today, we, it's not really magic. It's sleight of hand. It's what it is. And it says, then Pharaoh called his other wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptians did the same thing with their magic. Here's what they did. I don't know how, well, let me tell you, I don't know how they did what they did. All I can tell you is this sleight of hand. It was some kind of trick. They've probably done this before, and they say, okay, we're taking a stick. We're going to turn it into a serpent, just like, uh, just like Moses and Aaron did. And they threw down their serpents, their staffs, which also became serpents, it says in verse 12. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Pharaoh's heart, however, rem remained hard. He still refused to listen, just as the Lord had predicted. So here's what happens. You got these magicians that come in, and they do a nice little trick, and they're like, yeah, here we go. We, we can do the same thing. And you know why I think it's important that God put this in, in, in the Word of God? You know why I think it's, it's important for us to see this? Because you go, well, like, what's the big deal about these magicians? They throw down their staff. It does the same thing. I, I questioned that a lot, and I was asking myself this question. Why in the world would it have it? You know what I think it is? I think it's to show that when people don't really want to believe God, they'll look for any excuse and every excuse not to believe God. They'll go and call in people, and they just wanted to see. I mean, all they needed was, was some little magic trick to, to turn a staff into a serpent, and then that, that would be like, oh, yeah, see, I don't need to believe you, Moses and Aaron. I don't need to worry about what you say. Uh, we can do tricks too, and theirs came from God, but these were just like sleight of hand tricks. And I believe that we see in this, what we see is that people are constantly looking for any and every reason not to believe that it's God. It's the power of God at work. They want to do anything and everything they can to try to ignore the power of God in their lives. And you, you see this all the time in your own life. And we see uh, God kind of amps up things here. We, we know about the plagues. I'm going to go through the plagues today. We're going to go through them rather quickly. 
Um, but we're going to start with uh, the plague of blood in uh, Exodus chapter 7, beginning of verse 20. So you'll have to be flipping a good bit today. Hang with me. Uh, we'll get through this today, and uh, I, I hope and pray that God shows you something through this. In Exodus chapter 7, beginning of verse 20, it says, So Moses and Aaron uh, did just as the Lord had commanded. The Lord had commanded them to go down to the Nile River and turn it into blood. Uh, and Moses was supposed to go down into the river and turn it into blood. Now, what's the big deal about the Nile River? The Nile River is where Egypt gets all of its prosperity. It gets all of its food, its sustenance, like everything comes from the Nile River. When the Nile River, uh, it, it, it overflows and it floods over the banks and it, it fills up these farmlands where they actually grow stuff. If it wouldn't do that, then it would just be like desert land. So it's a really big deal. The Nile River is a really big deal to the folks in Egypt. It is where they get everything. That's the only reason they're prosperous is because they are so incredibly dependent on the Nile River and the water that flows through it. And here God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take away, to show you that I'm for real, to show you I am who I say that I am, I'm going to take away the Nile River, the thing that gives, it's the lifeblood, if you will, of Egypt. I'm going to take it away. And this is what it says. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded them. And as Pharaoh and all his officials watched, Aaron raised the staff and struck the water of the Nile. Suddenly the whole river turned into blood. The fish in the river died and the water, uh, and the water became so foul that the Egyptians couldn't drink it. There was blood everywhere throughout the land of Egypt. Can you imagine how devastating this must have been to the folks of Egypt? Like, can you imagine blood? And I'm not talking about, this is not, I don't believe this is some sort of algae that kind of looked red and it made the, the, the Nile River look like blood. I believe that because the word of God says that it was blood, that I believe that it was blood. And that's literally what it transformed into. Uh, we know that Jesus turned water into wine. I don't think God has any problem at all taking water and turning it into blood. And I believe that's exactly what happened here. The Nile River turned to blood. That's gross, y'all. I don't know about you, but that's kind of sick to me. I'm like, ooh, that is nasty. You imagine going down to the Nile River trying to get something to drink, and you're like, thank you, Edward Cullen. Instead, I think I would rather have a Dasani. I just cannot imagine how nasty it would be to be full of blood. And they, you can't grow crops of blood. You can't feed your livestock with blood. Man, these people were devastated. The fact that there was blood, that their, their, their whole sustenance, everything, their, their lifeblood, if you will, the Nile River had been taken away from them. The fish started dying. Of course, the fish can't breathe. They can't keep swimming in a pool of blood. And God said, see, see, Pharaoh, see what I can do. I mean, you would have think this would have been very convincing to Pharaoh to actually have uh, the Nile River turn into blood. It says, but in verse 22... Verse 22, it says this, but again, the magicians of Egypt used their magic, and they too turned the water into blood. I believe that they probably did it on a small scale. I believe they probably had a cup of water and turned that into blood, some kind of sleight of hand trick once again, and, and, and they, they took like a little cup, and they said, see, we can turn stuff into blood. That's not such a big deal after all. These guys had taken the whole Nile River and turned it into blood under God's command. And here, the magicians, they probably take a little cup and they say, all right, we're going to take this and we're going to turn it into blood. And they do that. And that's all Pharaoh needed to write it off once again. This is not a big deal. This is not really the hand of God. This is just, this is just some magic trick that these guys are doing. So, 
God's got to take it up a notch. He's got to do an Emerald Lagasse and kick it up a notch just a little bit more. And in chapter 8, we see the plague of frogs. Now this too, if you think that the, the Nile River turning to blood wasn't nasty enough, can you imagine the frogs that come next? In chapter 8, verse 5, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, raise up the staff in your hand over the, all the rivers and canals and ponds in Egypt and bring, all, bring up frogs over all the land. I think God's got a sense of humor. I like the way this one happened. That's pretty cool, right? So Aaron raised up his hand, the waters of Egypt, and frogs came up and covered the whole land. But the magicians were able to do the same thing with their magic, and they too caused frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. You think the Nile River turning to blood was gross. Can you imagine frogs everywhere? I'm not talking about like there's a little... Uh, you know, handful of frogs that have crawled into your yard and they're hopping around and they're croaking and they're making the noises and all that kind of stuff. Which, by the way, uh, would have been something that they would have looked forward to, typically. Uh, I think it's interesting that God took something that they normally would have been looking forward to and, and took that in and devastating them. They devastated the land of Egypt with it. See, what they would have been looking forward to is when the Nile River flooded and, and took over the banks and went into the fields and started flooding the fields, there would be these little ponds that would be left over. And what would happen in those little ponds is that there would be frogs there, right? So in the summertime, when the ponds are there and the crops are growing and you got the frogs croaking, that would have been like music to their ears. They'd be like, you know, there's water out there, and that means the stuff I'm, I'm growing, and it's growing. If it didn't have water and didn't have the frogs, then it would have been... Uh, it would have been devastating to their crops. Well, it would have been a good, good thing to them. Well, God took that and he took it to the next level and he said, I'm going to devastate you with frogs. They used to have uh, gods that they would worship that would like have the head of a frog and stuff like that. And God said, all right, I'm going to take that. I'm going to ruin your gods and I'm going to show you the God that I am. And he goes in and he just covers the land with frogs. Now, ladies, you think it's nasty when your husband doesn't cut his toenails in bed? Like, like when, when, you know, they brush up against your leg and it like cuts a little bit. You know, you think that's nasty. You can imagine if there are frogs crawling around in your bed. You think that's gross, man. I cannot imagine frogs crawling around in my bed. They would be like, oh, I, I just, I, from everything that I read about where they would have been, they would have been whatever you cooked, whatever you tried to clean. Man, they're just everywhere. They just devastated everything. And guys, I mean, you know how bad it is when your wife doesn't shave her legs. You can imagine a frog crawling in there between y'all. Oh, that's just nasty. I mean, I'm not scared of frogs. Don't get me wrong, but that's nasty. You know, I mean, just everywhere, just covered up in frogs. And God said, this is who I am. And I'm telling you, you got to let my people go. But Pharaoh still won't listen. He's, he's kind of a doofus and he won't listen. And we go on. God's got to do something else, the plague of gnats. Now, this, this is bad, too. This is annoying. The other ones were gross. This begets annoying. In verse 16 of Exodus chapter 8, it says this. So the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, raise up your staff and strike the ground, and the dust will turn into a swarm of gnats throughout the land of Egypt. Whew. That's, that's bad. That's so annoying. I hate gnats. Uh, so throughout the land of Egypt... So Moses did just as the Lord had commanded them. When Aaron raised up the hand and struck his staff, gnats infested the entire land, covering the Egyptians and their animals. Oh, my gosh. That's so, oh, that's so annoying. I, I mean, you know, you would think God take it easy on us a little bit, but gnats are annoying. I remember when I was a kid, we used to go down to uh, a place in South Georgia called uh, Twin Cities, Georgia. My uncle lived there. 
And it's not in the threshold of hell, but it's right next door to it. So, uh, it, I mean, literally, there was nothing you could do as a kid in Twin Cities, Georgia. My parents would take me down to, uh, down to the park, and I'm like, wow, this is great. Let's go to the park, and let's go swimming. And, and or we would go swing on the swings, and, and what would happen is you'd be swinging on the swings, and before you knew it, you were just absolutely covered in gnats to the point where you couldn't see. Gnats in your eyes. I mean, it was just an awful place to be as a kid. And uh, I, I just cannot help but to remember what it was like to be covered up in gnats. And here, these people uh, have got a swarm of gnats. And God has said, this is what I'm capable of. Let my people go, but still, but still. Listen to what it says, actually, as we go on in Exodus chapter 8, beginning in verse 16 again. It says, when Aaron, excuse me, in verse 17, when Aaron raised his staff and struck the ground with his staff, gnats infested the entire land, covering the Egyptians and their animals. All the dust of the land of Egypt turned into gnats. Pharaoh's magicians tried to do the same thing with their secret arts, but this time they failed, and the gnats covered everyone, people and animals alike. Listen to what it says in verse 19. This is the finger of God, the magicians exclaimed to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's heart remained hard. And he, can, they, he wouldn't listen to them just as the Lord had predicted. Now, you would think that if the magicians could do anything, that they could produce gnats. Like, that's not hard, right? All you need is a, 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 a swampy place, and you could produce some gnats, right? All you need is a nice little bag, and you could, you could produce some gnats. That'd be a pretty easy sleight-of-hand trick to pull off. But here they said, you know what, gnats, we can't produce that. We can't do that. Uh, that's something we can't do. Uh, so that was all... That must be the finger of God. It's so funny to me that the magicians, they got all the way through this other stuff and they couldn't do the gnat thing. And they're like, well, it's obviously got to be God. If it's gnats, then it must be God. We go on to see that Pharaoh still won't listen. He still won't listen. And then flies come. You guys know the story that the, the next thing that comes is the flies. And flies are nasty. Um, you know, I used to say that time's fun when you're having flies. But it's really not. It's not. Time's not fun when you're having flies. Um, that's all right, you'll get that later. About 10 o'clock tonight, you'll be like, oh, I know what he was saying now. But anyway, one of the things that I remember about seeing a ton of flies, the most flies I've ever seen was we were at uh, Plymouth Village in Massachusetts where they do the whole recreation of what, what it must have been like at Plymouth Rock and the, the, the town, that, the village that was there. And they had these people that are like in full like pilgrim garb and everything, and they were trying to live just like the pilgrims lived. And it was... It was so gross because they were covered up in flies. And this lady was in this little hut, and they had a fire burning in there, and it was covered in smoke. And she literally, she, she spoke in like old English, right? And she told us that what she was eating was not a rabbit, but it was a hare. And it was so nasty because that thing was covered in flies. They were trying to reenact what it would have been like to be the pilgrims, and it was, it was just gross. She reached down, literally pulled off a leg of this rabbit after she did like this to get all the flies off of it and ate it. And I was like, how could you do that? That is so gross. I was just in, I was like, oh. I mean, it's one thing to, to, you know, portray somebody and really get into the character and talk in old English and wear the garb. But when you start having to swat the gnat, the flies away so you can eat the food, I go, no, thank you. I will get another job. I will do something else. I will go to Denny's and work before I do that. I am not so into it that I got to shoo the gnats away or the flies away just so I can eat the food. That was horrible. Oh. I just cannot, I can't wrap my mind around that. The next thing that happens, and I'll just kind of summarize the next 
few things that kind of happens. The next, next thing that happens is the livestock start to die, right? So another plague comes, livestock start to die. But what's interesting about this is that the, the Egyptian livestock dies, but the Hebrews, the Israelites, their livestock doesn't die. Their livestock lives. Their cows and stuff, they continue to live. And I believe that this is God's way of saying, look, I'm serious. I, this is really about letting my people go, letting, letting the people of Israel, letting them go because I am protecting them. I believe this is a little glimpse as to what is to come. I said, I'm protecting them, and it's not going to be so good for you guys in Egypt. And all the livestock die, and the Israelites, man, they're still kicking, and they're prospering, and they're doing okay. God's taking care of them, his people. Then obviously, next thing that happens, we've all heard about it, the boils. Oh, I can't imagine this either. You know, I mean, this is, this is acne to the one millionth degree, y'all. If you're a teenage student, I, this, this is just nasty. I got boils. Oh, another one, man. Like I, God just, for whatever reason, man, the wrath that he pours out is nasty. And flies and gnats and blood and all that and then boils. Oh, good. Yeah, great. Boils coming up on your skin. Then the next thing that happens, the Pharaoh still doesn't listen. His heart is still hardened. And what happens next is uh, hail comes uh, from the sky. This terrific hailstorm comes. In. I mean, like, I know that a lot of you are, like, hoping that a hailstorm like this will come this, this next couple of days so you can stay out of school and all that. Look, I talked to James Spann. It's probably not going to happen. I'm just saying. I love y'all. I want you to be out of school. You're probably going to school. Just say it. But anyway, so you're hoping, like, a hailstorm like this will come in the next couple of days. You don't really want a hailstorm like this. Like, this was such a hailstorm that it, like, killed livestock and it killed people. I mean, like, that's how serious it was. I don't think this would be fun to play out in, in, the, in the ice. I don't think this would be fun. You're not getting a sled and going out and sliding on this stuff. I mean, like, this was devastating kind of hailstorm. And, and Pharaoh, he st- I believe that he's, even though his heart is hardened, I believe he's starting to kind of get the picture of what's going on here. I believe he's starting to get the picture of the fact that this is God and and, and this is, is for real. And we go on and we see locusts. Oh, my gosh, another nasty one. Uh, locusts are like little bit crickets, kind of, and they're just, they, when they come in, they wipe out everything. Once again, God taking away all their prosperity, taking away all their food. Uh, you, you remember that, that, that um, Jacob had sent uh, his sons to go to Egypt to get some food because they were having a famine in their land. Well, now what's happening is the tables are turned a little bit. Egypt is undergoing all this devastation, and the Israelites are the ones that are being taken care of, and God's watching after them, and that's what we see. And then it comes down. This all reaches a fever pitch. This all reaches kind of like comes to a head, if you will, at the end, and we see the Passover. And this is what... See, I want you to understand something, that when the Israelites look at, 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 at God... They see him just like we see him, and they, they see him as a redeemer. They see him as savior. And this is the reason that they see it this way. The Jews, even today, celebrate the Passover. They celebrate the fact that, that God is a savior. God is a redeemer. And this is why. Right here, we'll read in Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. It says, when the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, the Lord gave the following instruction to Moses and Aaron. It says, from now on, 
This month will be the first month of the year for you. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for sacrifice, one animal for each household. This is what's, what's transpiring. They're, they're trying to get ready for what God is going to do. And he says, this is the time. You've got to go out and you've got to find a sacrificial lamb. You've got to find a sacrificial goat because I am going to protect you. That the firstborn is going to die. But if you take these instructions for what I'm about to say, then you will be protected. You will be passed over. Your firstborn will not die. And this is what happens in verse 11. It says, these are your instructions for eating this meal. Be fully dressed. Wear your sandals and carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency for this is the Lord's Passover. Here's what's happening. These people, they're supposed to choose this lamb and this goat. The Israelite people, they're supposed to choose them a, a lamb, a sacrificial lamb. And they're supposed to eat this lamb and they're supposed to take it, this lamb and put its, its blood on the doorpost. They're supposed to put it on the sides and on the top, and they're supposed to take the lamb's blood and, and put it there. I know it sounds kind of gross, but this is the way God is going to know. These are my people, and I'm supposed to pass over this house. And this house will not suffer the death and loss of the firstborn like the Egyptians are going to suffer. This is what they, they, they began to celebrate. And this is what they still celebrate to this day. And it says... This is what's interesting. God says, I'm coming so quickly, and you've got to be so ready that I want you to, to wear your sandals, carry your walking stick, and be ready to go. This is the way that I'm coming. I'm coming hard, and I'm coming fast, and you've got to be ready to go. You can't be hanging around trying to pack your bags. God says, you've got to be ready to go. Because when this happens, when it comes down, it's going to be, it's going to be hard, and it's going to be fast, and you've got to be ready to go because I said to go. And it says this. It says, on that night, I will pass to the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and every firstborn animal in the land of Egypt. And I will execute judgment on all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. You remember what I said about all these different gods that they worshipped? And they worshipped some that had like frog heads and, and they, they worshipped uh, the, the locusts to some degree. They worshipped the Nile. They worshipped all these things. And God is stricken down all of these gods. It says, I am God and it is coming hard and it is coming fast and furious. This is in verse 14. This is a day to remember each year from generation to generation. You must celebrate with a special festival to the Lord. This is the law for all time. God's saying, I want you to remember. I want you to remember the Passover. I want you to remember the day when, when I set you free. I want you to remember the fact that I am a Savior. I am a Redeemer. I am the one who sets free. And this is the way the Israelites still celebrate this today. Now, this is the way the Jews continue to celebrate, even through the time of Jesus, they still see God as a Savior. But there's something else that you need to know. There's something else that you need to understand about. We see God as a Savior too, right? We, we, we see God as somebody who sets us free, but it's not necessarily free from the Egyptians, not free from, uh, from slavery per se. We are, we are slaves to sin. We're, we are slaves uh, to the things that break God's heart. Our flesh cries out for those things. Our, our flesh cries out for lust and all kinds of sin. It cries out for those things. And in Luke chapter 2, it says that Jesus came to set us free from our sins. I, I, I was talking to a young man, telling him about Jesus. I said, you know what? 
You know, people think that, that Jesus came to set us free from hell. Jesus came to set us free from sin. Uh, the thing that you need most in your life is not to be set free from, from, from hell, but you need to be set free from sin. You don't need to be looking, you know, at the end of your life. You need to be looking at right here, right now. And what you need to be doing is you need to be set free from sin. And that is the reason that Jesus came, and that is the reason that we today as Christians, as Christ followers, we see God as a Savior because of Jesus Christ. And it says this in Matthew chapter 26. You've got to go to the New Testament with me because this is where it all comes together. This is where we go from focusing on what it means to be an Israelite to being a Christian, a Christ follower. In Matthew chapter 26, it says this. On the first day of the festival, unleavened bread. This is the festival that they continued to celebrate year after year after year after God had passed over them and set them free. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? It was unleavened bread because they didn't, they didn't want you to put yeast in it so it had time to rise. They didn't have that kind of time, man. They had to go. They had to be ready. They had to have their sandals on their feet. They had to have their walking stick in their hand. They needed to be ready to go. So they celebrated with unleavened bread. It says, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover meal? Because he was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew, and they knew that he needed to celebrate this. And Jesus said, and go into the city, and he told them, uh, you will see a certain man, tell him, the teacher says, my time has come, and I'll eat the Passover meal with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did, as Jesus told them, and prepared the Passover meal there. Now, the Passover meal uh, would have been this unleavened bread. They would have had wine there. Uh, they would have had bitter herbs. Um, this is the the, the sop that Jesus would, would dip into to feed Judas, to say to everybody, this is the one that is going to betray me. And they're, they're, they're preparing this meal. See, Jesus has already been talking to his disciples about the fact that he's going to have to go. He's going to have to lead them. And it's really bothered them a lot. You can imagine if, if God has come to earth and he's walking around talking with you and healing people and and, and making blind people able to see and, and making lame people able to walk and healing lepers and all this kind of stuff. And then he says he has to go. You can imagine that that kind of weighed on him pretty heavy. And here we see Jesus is about to shake everything up. That he is about to turn everything upside down. And they really, I can imagine the tension in the room is so heavy and so thick. You could probably cut it with a knife. When Jesus stops in the middle of the Passover meal, celebrating the Passover, the time when God was shown as Redeemer, as Savior. It says in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 26, it says this. As they were eating, Jesus took some of the bread and blessed it. And he broke it in pieces and gave it to his disciples. And he said, take this and eat it. For this is my body. This is my body. What Jesus was saying to his disciples, he said, no longer are you going to celebrate the Passover the same way. No longer are you going to see God as Redeemer, as Savior, just because of the way he passed over us and rescued us from the Egyptians. Now you're going to see, now you're going to see that my body is going to be the sacrificial lamb for you.
My body is the one that's going to be beaten and, and bruised and torn apart beyond recognition of being a human being at all. Now is the time that my body is what you will celebrate with this Passover meal. It says, and he took the cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to, them, to each and said, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. He was talking about his own blood. Jesus was talking about the fact that his blood would be poured out for all of them. That in the middle of their sinful condition that they were in, and they recognized their sin, and they recognized their desperate need for God, and they recognized God as a Savior, Jesus was saying, you know what Jesus was saying? He was saying, the I am, it's now I am the way. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through him. That now his life, would, his body would be beaten and bruised and his blood would be poured out for all of us. And as we celebrate what we call communion, what we celebrate the Lord's Supper, if you will, what we're talking about is this, is that Jesus was a sacrificial lamb. That because his blood covers over us, God can pass over and the wrath of God is not poured out. I want you to understand something. I want you to understand. Judgment comes because God is a good God. That he is a just and fair God. And if you look at your sin and you look at your life and you look at where you are and in your fleshly condition, all the things your body cries out for, you know, just like I know, that we are a people full of sin, full of the things that breaks God's heart. But listen, there is a way. There is a way that, that the wrath that is due to you because of that sin can be passed over. And you can be rescued and you can be redeemed and you can be set free from sin. And that is, the only way is through Jesus Christ. And he, what he was telling his disciples is that my body must go through this. My blood must be spilled in order for this to make a way for you to get to God. In order for his judgment to be passed over you and for you to be set free, for you to be saved. God is all about setting free. God is all about rescuing. He sees the condition that you're in. He recognizes the fact that your flesh cries out for these things that break his heart. And all he wants to do is rescue you. And what is so amazing to me is that there are teenagers, there are adults, there are senior citizens, there are people that will say, thank you, but no thank you, God. They will say, I know what the wrath of God is. I know what is coming to me. And they will say, I know that Jesus is the way, but I don't want my life to change. And because of that, I will say, thank you, but no thank you, Jesus. That is a tragedy of proportion that we cannot even recognize. We're going to have a time where we take the Lord's Supper. We're going to have a time where we celebrate the fact that Jesus took all of our, our sin on him. We're going to do that. But before we do that, I'm going to pray. And, and students, this is in particular, this is for you. 
But listen to me. If there is an adult in this place that is still struggling with this fact that they don't have a relationship with Jesus and they know they need to commit their life to him, let me tell you something. This is just as much for you as it is for these students. I wonder if there's anybody in this room that feels like I've missed the opportunity, that it's too late, it's already passed by, and I'm too far gone. Let me tell you something. Everybody be still for just a second. I have to tell you the most important thing you've ever heard in your life. You have to listen closely to what I'm about to say. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. And you know what he requires? He requires you to say yes. That I don't want to do things my way anymore. I just want to be with Jesus. He doesn't require you to know everything in this book. He doesn't require you to know some elaborate prayer. He just wants you to say yes. He wants you to say, my life belongs to you now, Jesus. God loves you. God loves you. Is there anybody that would be so brave, so bold enough to say that, yes, indeed, I want to make Jesus Christ Lord and Savior in my life. I'm going to pray. And if that is the case, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you a chance to stand up and say, yes, indeed, I need a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father God, I know that there are some people in this place, and Lord, their heart is beating out of their chest, Lord. But I also know that there's the enemy, and he is whispering in their ear right now, telling them a lie, telling them that they're not good enough, that they're not worthy, and that they can't. God, I pray that they would be brave. I pray that they would be bold. I pray that they would say, you know what, enough is enough. I'm tired of living my life my way. God, if there's anybody in here like that, if there's anybody in here that knows that you are calling them out, that they can hear your voice and they hear what you have to say to them, and that is that you want to rescue them and you want to save them. God, if there's anybody here like that, I pray that they would be bold this morning. God, don't let them sit still. God, let them hear your voice. Let them be bold. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody remain seated for just a second. And we'll give you a chance. See, there's some students that feel like they, they missed a chance last night. They sat there and they didn't stand up. But listen, this is what I also know. There's some adults. Maybe they were there last night or maybe they're here this morning and they know that they should stand up. If you want to give your life to Jesus, unashamedly, you don't care what anybody else thinks. You just want to live with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Will you stand up now? Is there anybody at all that would be willing to stand up and be bold? Anybody else? Anybody else that's tired of doing things their way and ready to say, I'm ready to surrender. I've had enough. 
I can't do it in my way anymore. Anybody else? When I was a kid, nine years old, I remember how my heart was beating out of my chest. Oh, please don't sit there. You may be bold enough to stand. take the Lord's Supper and I want you to take the Lord's Supper as a follower of Jesus I want you to take the Lord's Supper because I believe that when you stood and you made that proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior that the prayer that you say we're going to lead you in a prayer I'm going to take you to the side and I want to personally talk to you and explain to you what it means to be a Christ follower for just a minute after the service but I believe that you can take this Lord's Supper with the boldness knowing that I am a Christ follower because it is all about surrender and it is all about making that commitment and if you've done that will everybody else please stand we're going to pass out the Lord's Supper now I'm going to pray and then we're going to pass it out if you stood um, thank you for being bold thank you for being brave if you didn't stand and you know that you should have you still got another chance when we go back there we'll go back behind this curtain and we'll sit down at a table with these people that stood and I'm going to tell them what it means to be a Christ follower you've still got a chance if you'll meet me behind that curtain when we do it when we talk I'll, I'll be happy to show you what it means to be a follower of Jesus let me pray and then we're going to celebrate the fact that Jesus died for us through taking of the Lord's Supper. We're going to have guys come forward and pass that out after I pray. And uh, we're just going to celebrate Jesus. Father, thank you so much, God, for these people that had boldness, the people that stood. Lord, I know, God, it's not easy to do that. I know that it is not easy to, to surrender your whole life in front of a crowd full of people. Lord, but I thank you for what happened here. It was an absolute miracle, God, what you did. God, we, we know how you rescued the people of, of, of Israel from Egypt. But God, this morning you have rescued people from the misery of sin. You have set them free. And God, I praise your name for that. Lord, as we celebrate, God, the body, the body that was beaten beyond recognition for me, the blood that was spilled for me, the blood that was spilled for everybody else, the body that was broken for everybody else. God, I, I praise your name for the fact that we can just be close to you. We call it communion because we get to commune with you. We get to be close to you. We get to do this in remembrance of what you did for us. God, I pray, Lord, that you just you draw close to us in this time. We just take your, your Lord's Supper just as you did with your disciples. God, I pray that we just be in an attitude of celebration and thanks and praise for what you did in our lives. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name. So these guys are going to begin to pass this out. And, and, and let me tell you something. If, if you are a Christ follower, uh, you can take this knowing that Jesus died for you. 
If you're not a Christ follower and you said, man, I don't know if I need to be taking this or not. Let me, let me tell you something. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you'll just be eating bread and drinking some juice. But if you're a Christ follower, if you're somebody that believes that Jesus Christ died for you, that sacrificed his body and his blood for you, this will be something a lot more special than that. It'll be a time where you get to celebrate what Jesus did for you. But let me tell you something. Paul warns us. He warns us, don't do this. Don't do this with your heart in the wrong place. Don't do this with your heart full of sin. You need to repent of sin. You need to to say, God, you just need to take time in prayer. We do this different at Simple Church. At Simple Church, we let you take it on your own, your own time. Through this next song that we do, we celebrate things. Uh, We're just going to let you take it in your own time. So what you need to do is you need to repent. You need to pray and repent of your sin. You need to let your heart be cleansed by the power of God before you take this, okay? Because if you do it without a clean heart, if you do it without repentance, then you do it unworthily, right? That's what Paul says. So let me encourage you. In the next few minutes, as we sing, I want you to pray to God. I want you to get close to God. And then when you feel right, like it's the right time and the right place, you take the Lord's Supper on your own time. You, you can pray whatever you need to do. You just open it up and take it on your own time. Father, once again, we praise your name for the fact that Jesus died for us. Lord, we can never say or do anything to repay you for that, but what we can do is we can be close to you and we can celebrate what you did in our lives. God, I just pray, Lord, for those that that stood just a little bit ago, Lord, as they surrendered their hearts and lives through their proclamation that Jesus is king in their life, Lord, I just pray that they can take this Lord's Supper now knowing that I am a Christ follower that Jesus Christ indeed died for me. Thank you for that commitment. Thank you, Lord, for dying for us. Thank you for the blood that was spilled for us. In Jesus' name, amen.